Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. Now, on to my episode with Bob Giraldi. And the winner is... Oh, make me feel like the winner. <laughs> Michael Jackson, beat it! This is a wonderful. I'm here. This is my sister. Oh, Bob Gerard. Hi. This is my sister Latoya. I'm so honored she's here. I didn't know she was going to bring this here. Um, <laughs> working on uh, Beat It was a great experience. Uh, I had so much fun doing it. And uh, this is my director, Bob Giraldi, who I chose to be. I put all my heart and my soul in my work, and I'm so honored and happy that I won this wonderful award. Thank you. Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. For the 35th anniversary of Michael Jackson's thriller, all of December we are interviewing the silent giants who played a vital role in helping making the album the greatest selling album of all time. This week's silent giant is Bob Girardi, the director of Michael Jackson's Beat It music video. This was the second music video released on MTV from the thriller album and received the 1984 American Music Award for Favorite Pop Rock Video and Favorite Soul Music Video. In this interview, I chat with Bob about his upbringing in New Jersey his collegiate basketball career, how he broke into film, and the making of Michael Jackson's groundbreaking music video for Beat It. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the film director, my friend, the silent giant, Bob Gerard. I'm on the, actually, I'm on the styles both. Are you um, on both? I think. Oh, man, you're fancy. <laughs> What's up, Bob? How are you? All right, I'm good. I'm good. And you? Man, I can't complain. I'm, I'm with Bob Girardi right now. I can't okay. complain. All right. It is like 80 degrees in New York City, so, you know, but it's okay. It's, it's all good. Well, it's, it's, it's all good. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I want get right, to get right started with, where are you from, Mr. Girardi? I was born in Patterson, New Jersey. Okay. Small northern Jersey town up there and to the left. And uh, at a different time when life was different. Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. What was your upbringing like in Jersey? Um, it was middle class, 
a little bit of everybody, everything. Um, I was sort of situated in a kind of rough and tumble little Italian immigrant neighborhood, but not without touching, rubbing shoulders with everybody. And uh, the women were beautiful. Hey. And the guys were tough and fast on their feet. And uh, we were all coming of age. Yeah, we should move, we should move to Jersey again. <laughs> Go to Patterson. And then one of the thing that always stood out was that we always wanted to be in New York. You wanted on every Friday or Saturday night, you would just, we'd look at each other and say, who's got the car? Let's go to New York. And New York was only 45 minutes away. But once you crossed that bridge and you got into Manhattan, then you knew you were, something was happening. What your parents do for a living? My, my mom was a, sort of an artist and uh, one of the really good chefs. Um, did a cookbook and studied and taught some classes. And my dad was a what they we call as a public accountant, numbers, so that... M money man. Money man. <laughs> so with me, it's always been a little bit right down the middle, you know, creative and corporate. Okay. You know, corporate and creative. It's, we can just can't go too far either side. What was your first medium of art? Was it film at first? Did it start from music or...? I was a ball player. Okay. And uh, that was my life. I, I grew up around fine athletes. And actually, our uh, friends had dads that were professional scouts, baseball scouts, and also I was always around, you know, more than just the sandlot. It was always organized. My mom saw something in me that she said, you can do whatever you want, but on Saturday morning, you're going to go to art school in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And, you know, I said, Mom, what am I going to do there? You're going to do what they tell you. You're going to paint. You're going to learn about color, and you're going to learn about texture, and you're going to learn about surface. And so I said, okay, I have no choice. We go. And off I went on Saturday mornings to Ridgewood, New Jersey, to a, sc a school of art, and I painted. It wasn't very good, but I painted. Yeah. And I got better, and I painted. Um, and then I, I come home, and the rest of my life was spent, you know, be, squatting behind the plate. So you, you definitely, at this time in your life, shifted more towards athletics than you did towards art. Yeah, always. And uh, strangely enough, it's how it got me to Pratt Institute, and it's how it's got me everywhere. You know, without without playing ball, I wouldn't have gone to college. I wouldn't have been able to get a scholarship. I wouldn't have, you know. And and people laugh, and um, I think I often think about that and what it was back for me when that was my language. That's what I used to walk around with in school, the duffel bag, and people thought maybe it was paints in there or whatever, but it was jockstrap and, you know, and stuff. I just, you know, I played basketball and I played baseball and it was my language. It was my way of being different, you know, being taken seriously, actually. Um, and no question, it was my way out. You know, I had to get out. A lot of kids didn't leave. They stayed and made nice lives. I mean, I had to just leave and go someplace and do something else. Yeah. And so what <clears throat> did the... What drove your decision to go to Pratt? Was it based off of, you know, uh, the, the arts or was it based off of, you know, the, the athletic and or did you know It was that? athletic okay. and art, uh, the mix again. Here's, okay. Here we go with that, you know, with the, with the artist and the, and the accountant. Okay. Uh, it was right down the middle. I was on my way with a scholarship to Wagner uh, in New York, uh, Staten Island. Mm -hmm. I was going to play both sports. But something, because luck's always kind of followed me around. I've been a very fortunate young man uh, to have luck with me a lot. And this time, 
it came in the form of a an athletic director who saw me and he saw my aptitude and the test when I had I had to take a test as well as you know as well as my uh, press clippings you know uh, the ball I played and he said you know um, Bob you you just got this aptitude for art that's just off the charts so why don't you do you ever think about an art school and I said oh I don't think he wants me anymore he said no no we'd love to have you but uh, my brother just took over being a recruiter for Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, which is only thought of as an art and architecture school. No sports at all. However, they just happened to have hired a coach who came from Rhode Island University who was uh, in, a, in, a, in the NIT, a guy named Moe Zarchin, who was really a fabulous coach and serious, and we're giving him four scholarships a year. So, you know, we believe that maybe if we raise the beauty of sport in the body, it'll help with the mind and art, all of that esoteric stuff. Yeah. You know, and I said, count me in. I'll, I'll, I'll let me go talk to the man. And uh, I did. And instead of taking that trip to Staten Island, I took the trip to Brooklyn. You know, so instead of Wagner, it turned out to be Pratt. Uh, and my life changed from that point on. And what was Brooklyn like at this time? Tough. I mean, I went to, you know, Pratt's in uh, Bed-Stuy. In fact... Well, the, it's fancy now. Now it's Clinton Hill. Uh, now it's Clinton Hill. <laughs> then it was Bed-Stuy. Yeah. And the four years I played, I had to go... We played in an armory, the Sumner Avenue Armory, which is... We had to have guards take us down in the bus and all, and was many people that would want to go brave the hood to go watch a bunch, bunch of white kids run up and down the court. Play. <laughs> we, we called basketball. Um, but we did it, and um, the experience was fabulous. And uh, Myrtle Avenue had an L over it and no more. And and we'd escape with our ladies, and we'd, we'd go to Fort Greene where you, but you weren't allowed to. And, you know, a lot of places we went that we weren't supposed to go. Today you walk around, and it's the coolest you know, place oh, yeah. in Brooklyn, you know, but it was, and the rats were big and the mice were, you know, were nasty and the cockroaches were everywhere. But that's, you know, college, that's growing up, that's getting a roommate, you know, that's uh, leaving home, Yeah, and, you know, although I only went over the bridge, you know. <laughs> and so like, <clears throat> and as far as like your medium of art at this point, when you get to Pratt, when did film come into play where you realize, you know, I want to get... Uh, to be a filmmaker? I'm old enough to be, have been raised in a print world. I started with print. There was no film. Mm. There was no advertising film. Everything was an ad in Time or in newspaper, the back page of the Times, whatever. But there was no real emotion. There was no, you know, no, no art that spoke to people through motion and sound and visuals. That all of a sudden, when I became <clears throat> working at Young and Rubicam as a print art director or assistant art director, all of a sudden, somebody came one day and said, you know, we're going to start making television commercials. And, well, what are they? What, you know, well, you do the same thing, only it's motion. Only you use sound. You use music. Gosh, you can use all that shit. You can use actors, you know, and so I... Said, okay, we're going to go for it. And my first commercial that I ever did that had an emotion was a commercial for Dream Whip. You know, it was Adam and Eve talking to each other and just two hands pushing a beautiful dessert with Dream Whip all over it, back and forth. Adam, no, Eve, I'd like to have, no, Adam, you can't have that. Yes, I can, Eve. You know, it was, a, so I, right from the beginning, I, 
I was always taken with the, the power of communication through sound. More than picture. To me, it always was sound that made you cry, not the picture. The picture helped, but you could look at a dozen pictures and just hear one sound and you'd cry. Now, you know? now at Pratt, what did you end up graduating with? I ended up graduating with an advertising uh, and design degree. Um, didn't do much film at all, did no film. But it wasn't until I graduated that I went to work a year later at Young and Rubicam in New York that this advertising, this commercial thing started to take r root in America. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was a young art director's assistant at the time it did, and I got this chance to make this television commercial with some pretty cool people that understood motion, and I was just learning, and from that point on, most of my communication at Young and Rubicam and another place right after that had to do with sound motion, convincing people, emotion. I remember a couple of ads that moved me. One simple, I would ride the subway to Pratt from New Jersey or wherever, and, and then I would work at Young and Rubicon and I would ride the subway from the Port Authority to, you know, to, to Y&R to work. And on the subway at that time, there was a poster that said, uh, I quit school when I was 16. And it just, I kept staring at it and staring at it and say, shit, just this one turn of a phrase says so much about so many people and such a condition that I said, that's a business I'd like to be in. How did you go from, you know, you had no film experience. None. So, so how did you, how did they trust you to get that experience <clears throat> to, to be behind the camera? I, how, how do you develop that skill? I did my commercial. I watched the director set up and shoot Adam and Eve. Um, I did subsequent commercials for American Air, uh, Eastern Airlines, for uh, Metropolitan Life Insurance, for various General Foods products. And I always, my ideas always had a little twist. That's why I'm so captivated by short storytelling. Just I had a... I don't need a long two hours to make, as a, as a filmmaker, to make people, you know, emote or feel something. To me, you know, the future is short. I like the future. I mean, I like shortness. I like being able to say it quickly, but to say it devastatingly so you kind of go, wow, oh, I'm taken by that. Or laugh out loud. I mean, laughing is just as effective as crying. But the emotion is, it's better than to feel nothing. So I just had a sense, and I started hiring who at the time were considered to be the top film directors, commercial film directors in, in New York. And I just started making television commercials. And then one day I realized, damn, I could, I could and I should be doing this myself. And so after about three or four years, I worked at, actually I worked at Young Rubicam for nine years, went to a small advertising agency called Della Femina Travisano and Partners, where I was a creative director. Finally, I can do what I wanted. And I did a campaign with Jerry Della Femina for H&R Block, the tax, the tax people, company, the yeah. tax people. And I did a campaign for I, which was the beginning of the group 
concept of news, eyewitness news. Mm -hmm. I had about five or six different people, Frank Kifford, the football player, yeah. Bill Butel, Tex Antoine, the weather guy. There were some interesting people. Roger Grimsby was a personality. And we had their account, and I was doing television commercials for them. And I would write them and direct them. And, and Jerry, the boss, uh, Della Femina, let me do it. He let me not have to hire commercial directors on the outside to come in and direct my own work. He let me direct my own work. And he realized, and I realized soon, that I was pretty good at it. You know, I, get, I could get what I wanted. But then now, let's remember, a 30-second television commercial is a very unique time frame. Mm -hmm. It's unique in that it speaks quickly, and it's got to cover a lot of ground. It's got to say a lot. It's got to make a few different kinds of people happy, namely the client who's paying for it, you know, the creative people that are hoping that it says what it's supposed to say and the product that it's pushing. So it's not totally easy, but I just happen to have a knack at that, you know, and that's what started me in the world of film, this ability to tell a short story emotionally and get a result. If I did that and didn't get results, my life would have been completely different. Because what year, what year did you start your career in advertising? Um, I guess it was in the early 70s. Okay, okay. You know, so we're talking, what, 40-some years ago. I've been directing television commercials. And, um, and while I've, fell, I've fallen out of love with the passion of that business, I still... Do yeah, and I still in, when I go on set, I love it and laugh and and enjoy it, and I still can, I still can make. I mean, I is the interesting thing I guess for me is that I can still make film today that looks like somebody's twenty years old's making it. Wow, you know, I mean, I I know the tricks, I know the sensibility, I know the feeling. You know, sometimes you know that age and youth get complicated they get mixed up you know it, you know you don't necessarily have to grow old your body does no question can't stop it yeah you know but your mind doesn't absolutely you know and your passion doesn't so and so how did you transition um from your commercial work into music videos like how did that transition well i did a lot of commercials and i was lucky in that well for first year i didn't work at all one year i didn't work i sat in the office uh, of the studio of which hired me to be a you know because I came from a with a good reputation in the advertising business as a hot art director oh this guy's going to be a director of television commercials watch his grow watch him grow well I didn't grow at all I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't explode I didn't do anything I sat there and I doodled in a book for a year and I kept asking my friends in the business to give me a job and they kept saying Bob you're great you're going to be great but you know my client doesn't want me to work with a first timer and blah blah, blah all of that rookie stuff right. you know a year later I got a chance to do a commercial and another one and another one and another one. And they caught on and they became, because it's only as, you know, as you know, the business, the music business, only as good as your last recording. Mm -hmm. You know, you got, the, you know, you got something that's hot. Some people love to sing and play and tap to, you're on to the next. If not, you go home. Uh, but I did stuff that people liked and my reputation grew. And then all of a sudden I got lucky and I did a, then I did a campaign that was pretty big. And then the next one was bigger. And then I did show tunes. Um, don't forget, uh, Bob Fosse did the first uh, music commercial for a Broadway show when he did the one for Pippin 
I did the second ever made for a chorus line. Okay. You know, and, and, and I have no rhythm at all. I can't, I'm not a very good dancer. I can move, I can fool, I can fool you, but, you know, it sometimes takes more trouble than it's worth. And it's just not in my, but something else is in my body. Something allows me to take the camera and make it work, make it in sync, make it in rhythm. You know, it's, that's the extent, it's the visual that I can, that I can dance with. It's not myself, yeah. you know, um, nor can I sing, but I can, capture it on film and right off the bat people could see that and so i was asked to do musical commercials dr pepper pepsi blah 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 and uh, and then four five six years later when i've had gained a pretty pretty nice reputation of being a viable director in the world of advertising this thing called music videos opened up and where it came from, it, we Americans don't give enough credit to the English that came mostly from the English. I mean, the Beatles were making videos long before we were. You know, there were small little films that, uh, you know, Linkletter was shooting or this one was shooting and that one was shooting. But they still, it's, it's more derivative of Great Britain than it was in Ameri of okay. America. But at the same time, and here we go with that luck and timing again, Michael was making you know, his Thriller album, and he had just coming off being a kid and was on his way to being a superstar adult, uh, but not the deity that he commanded years later, but he was right in that moment in the 80s. Lionel was coming off of the Commodores and was going to be, the you know, was going to have his own um, album, and, and Stevie was, you know, was at the top of his game, and everybody was, you know, there was no hip-hop, yeah, then at all it was they called soul but it was just good old-fashioned black artists singing their hearts out and and i just happened to be there at the time that this was all happening you know and i'm liking and loving making film i'm still making other film i'm mm -hmm. still selling soap i'm still selling you know uh underwear and and all of that uh but i'm also loving making film that dances that shouts that's in sync and it's in rhythm and then a young man approaches me who came from great britain and says there's this thing called music videos that's happening and you know i think you would be fabulous everybody to that point that were making music videos were either from the music world or photographers or not high quality but lower profile directors <clears throat> but bob i just got this feeling that you would you'd be able to nail it and i said okay what was his role what, he was a, he, he was a producer okay he's a producer his name like, was Ant anthony payne a, a film producer or a music uh, producer? music in a film came from great britain actually he was born in america went to great britain has a beautiful english lilt you know um came back to America and said, you know what, I'm a music producer. I'm gonna go get a director and we're gonna start making some of this stuff that people are beginning to think about making. And he came to me and said, uh, you wanna make someone? I said, well, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, but if you can get a good gig, let's talk about it. He said, what if I can get us something with Michael Jackson? And I didn't jump up and down because don't forget, I'm older. 
I was older then. Than my, I'm always going to be older than Michael. <laughs> you know, I didn't. Michael to me wasn't a superstar. He was marvelous, but I my recollection of Michael was that squeaky voice jumping up and down with that incredible way to move. But he wasn't didn't connect to me, and I didn't connect to him. And also, too, I want to I want to touch on this is also a very much a common thread amongst you know everyone a part of the series. Right. That Michael, we know Michael today. Right. In a certain light right. than where he was in 81, 82. Absolutely. Like, most people didn't realize, like, oh, this is going to be huge. This is going to be a big thing. Right. Um, so, yeah. You're- and certainly the brothers didn't add much. They added something. He was just another act. A good one. A good one. And anybody that saw him move and knew dance could see that there was something special. I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't know. And I said, well, I don't know Michael other than what I've seen on the shows as a, you know, in the Jacksons. I mean, he's alone. He's, yeah, he's very much alone. And he's got this album and he's got these single tracks. And here, go take this album home. And I took it home. And everybody, but everybody, fell in love with Billie Jean. Everybody. So, so let, let's go. Where does Mr. Payne, what is his first name? Anthony. Anthony like, Payne. Like Anthony and Cleopatra. What was, what was his connection to Michael? Like, how did he... None at all. He just thought that he could get to Hollywood. And he knew that Michael had two agents. Okay. And he thought he could get to them. Okay. Because he's a very self-confident producer. Okay. And he thought that with somebody like me, with the body of work that I had started to compile, that Michael might be just interested enough in someone other than who was directing... Um, and he guessed right, and who was other than who was directing most music videos. Don't forget, Michael always prided himself on um, change, on experimenting. And as loyal as Michael could be, he was also very disloyal in that he went off. He always would leave a director to go to somebody else, to leave an idea, to go to some other technique, into another place. You know, Michael was always, you know, hungry for, for challenges. Mm-hmm. And Anthony gets that right. And he said, let me try and get to his agents. Let me show him what you do. And let's talk about Billie Jean. Now, at this point, is Thriller out? Thriller's out. So at this it's point, ju- th- And it's just beginning to be that Michael is now beginning to be on everybody's lips. Michael's just beginning now to be bigger than what Michael was ever. Uh, again, t- timing. Um, and, so, and by, t- by time, and sorry to cut you off, by the time you... Talk to Mr. Payne, Anthony Payne. There are no videos out for off the album. No videos off the album okay. and no American videos. And if there were, they weren't playing anywhere unless they were white and rock. Because MTV at the same time, again, we're talking timing, was coming along with that white rock station for suburban white kids And that's why there was no black artists on MTV in the beginning, because its concept was that we were going to, you know, the audience was white, the audience was was mostly female, but there were kids in the suburbia, that's where a lot of the money was, and we're going to play, we're going to bring what they like, which was those white bands, Mm -hmm. you know. So all of that was colliding. And he asked me if I would let him do that. And I said, go for it, let's see what happens. And he did, lo and behold, make contact with Freddie DeMann and Ron Weissman, who were Michael's agents at the time. He mm-hmm. had dual agents. And said, I've got a dude in New York who's 
the big shot in the ad business, and they like that when they hear the ad business, the commercial business, because it's bottom line. It's all about bottom line. You can't be a director in a commercial business if you can't deliver bottom line. Mm-hmm. I delivered profitable, good-looking stuff. So they looked at my stuff, and they said, okay, this, this dude is talented. Let's maybe, maybe Michael will meet him. So they show Michael my work to see whether he's interested. And there was one commercial that I did at that time, <laughs> timing, I, I, it's so funny, for WLS-TV in Chicago. And it was a commercial for Eyewitness News depicting, asking me to depict something that happened on WLS-TV in Chicago. It was a story about two old people in a neighborhood that had just turned from completely white to completely minority. Black, Latino, Hispanic families moved into a a neighborhood in Morgan Park in Chicago. Only two old white people, both of whom were blind, wouldn't leave. They were too old. You know, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to live this out. And they decided to throw a block party for the neighborhood. And they can only invite all the black kids and all the Hispanic kids. And they all came. And here's this two white people who can't see, who ordered pizza and cupcakes and punch and soda and serving them, fumbling and serving them to all the black kids in the neighborhood who came. And they had a celebration. And they asked me to film that, to recreate that. Well, I couldn't use the two people. I used two actors, both of whom are now no longer with us, two older actors to play blind. And I used a beautiful bunch of African-American and Hispanic kids. And I made a commercial, I'll kick your ass. I mean, I'm not getting right after you. Socks. And it's the only time I ever cried on a, on, on a camera, by the way. I shot these two people acting blind, and I just, I just lost it because it just the whole idea of it, the whole concept of it was perfect. Michael saw it, and that was it. That was the end of the discussion. I want anybody that shoots that. I want him to make this, you know. He just loved this. Because Michael was a patsy for emotion. He loved to be uh, 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 excited and cry and laugh. He just, he just had that great personality. It was all about the, all about the, the, the stuff to Michael. So this moved him. He took a meeting. We, we took a meeting. Uh, Anthony was there with Ron and Freddie, and it all went well, and we talked about Beat It, and right off the bat, he said, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, Billie Jean was already shot a couple of weeks earlier. Wasn't running yet, but it was shot in the can, shot by Steve Barron from mm-hmm. California, and, uh, from uh, England, and photographed by a friend of mine, actually, who ended up being one of my DPs, Danny Pearl. Uh, for years Um, and it's an interesting video Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless how to get 30, 30, get 30, how get 20, 20, 20 get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month So, give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I never thought 
and people think it's classic, and it is, because the song is as good a song as you'll ever yeah. get. But I never, it never really moved me the way that song moved me. Well, but nonetheless. Well, also, too, Frank, I believe at the time, the, the, the music video concept was so new. And even though Michael's album yeah. was doing, you know, doing pretty well at yeah, that time. Yeah, CBS wasn't going to put that kind of money behind it just yet. Right. They didn't know that. Nobody knew what this was going to bring. They didn't know that music videos were going to turn, you know, were going to be the heart and soul of what young America wanted to see and would, and you would buy and go crazy and it would help sell albums. The same way when I did, uh, when I did a chorus line, uh, people rebelled against me when I, when I shot a chorus line uh, because they didn't, they didn't, you know, the actors, they didn't want to show up to make a television commercial on their day off. Nobody ever made commercials to sell Broadway. Today you can't have a show without a commercial right. or a campaign. Today it's important, it's, it's paramount, it's essential. Yeah. Then it was, what are you doing? I'm going to go in on my Monday, my day off, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to have to perform for a camera, a movie camera? Get out of it. And, you know, and, and I have a wonderful little story about dream girls and how that all came to be and you know this is where and actually when i shot a chorus line is where i met my brother michael peters who's one of the world's was one of the world's great choreographers i because he was the assistant choreographer to uh, uh bob 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 mm, and age age must we forget <laughs> um bob avion uh, Avian, who was the choreographer, uh, and everybody was under the auspices of, of, of Michael Bennett for a chorus line. And when we made that commercial, all I got was pushback from the, you know, the actors and the singers and dancers because they didn't want to do it. They didn't understand the power of advertising, the power of a commercial. Well, same thing with the music video. Nobody understood that power just yet. Meanwhile, he tells me that Billie Jean is gone, can't have it. But here's this track called Beat It. And why don't you take this track home and listen to it, and then let's talk. But he says to me, he says, but Bob, if we do it, I want the Crips and the Bloods in it. Do you know who the Crips and the Bloods are? I said, well, I think they're two of the most notorious gangs in Los Angeles. And I, you know, I have a lot of casting directors. I'm not too sure many could get to the Crips and the Bloods. What do you, what's, your, what's on your mind? And he said, I want this to be authentic. I want the Crips and the Bloods. And I said, deal, if you get them, I'll direct them. And we made a deal. And that's what history shows. He went out and, and somehow got to the Crips. He probably sent his agents out to, you know, to get... I make a deal with the Crips and the Bloods, maybe gave them money, I don't know. To this day, I don't know, nor do I care. But the Crips and the Bloods, about five or six of them on each side showed up, you know, you know, for, that, for the that, video. Uh, for the video. And I, I, wanted to, I want to get to the nitty-gritty of, like, how, from the beginning to the end, like, how much time did you have from that meeting to the end of production to get this video out? Well, I, he gave me time. He gave me time, but not a whole lot of time because the second track was going to be Billy, uh, Beat It. The first track, obviously, was Billy Jean. Right. Second track was going to be Billy uh, Beat It. And he needed, they needed, CBS needed a video to support it. And what was the budget for the video? $200,000. So he went from 50 and I asked for 200 But I showed him. I didn't make very much money. I showed him. I said, Michael, this is an idea. Here's the idea. Two days of shooting. This is what I need. It's not in wardrobe. It's in crew. It's in talent. You know, I'm, yes, I, you know, Billie Jean is you on some, you know, magical steps, yeah. you know, in black and white. 
Beat It is a takeoff. Now, I've been accused, not accused is the wrong word, but it's been written a lot over the years that Billy Jean, Beat It is derivative of West Side Story. And that's where the idea comes from. And you'll, and I'm, you'll now hear it, not that it's such a big deal, from the author that West Side Story, while I adore West Side Story, had absolutely nothing to do with Beat It at all. What was your inspiration? Me and my guys in my life in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, West Side Story is a fable. West Side Story is a bunch of dancers jumping up and down and making believe they knew how to handle those knives and knew how, you know, make, make, make them believe about life as a tough guy in gangs in the Upper West Side of New York. I didn't come from New York. I wasn't in gangs like that. So I had nothing to do with it. What it was was derivative of my life in Jersey, in Patterson, running around with a bunch of guys who always thought they were tougher than they were and always ready to back down when the, when the time came to really get it on. And that, to me, was what the, story, the song was always saying. It's a peace song. It's not a song about violence. It's a song, really, it's a song about time to, let's cool it. And my cool it was in dance. You know, when all these gangs were going to start breaking at the dance, that's when everybody, it's a very tongue-in-cheek. And some people miss the point, some people don't. It's just the fact that it's so beautifully danced and the track is so incredible that it worked as a, you know, as a... But it was nothing to do about with violence at all. I was parroting violence. And speaking of dance, you know, you really created one of the uh, most beautiful dance partnerships with Michael Peters and, and Michael Jackson. Uh, how did you get Michael Peters to be a part of the project? And what was the process like of creating the choreography from, from a director's perspective? Well, like I said, months before, I was lucky enough to do a chorus line. And I was lucky enough with all the bullshit going on in Joe Papp's life and Joe Papp theater and all of those um, dancers who I adore. I love him. Mean, chorus line moved me beyond words. It was so emotional. Such a beautiful show. But I connected that day mainly with Michael Peters. And we loved each other, especially that I would yell at everybody when they were lazy and didn't want to dance because it was their day off and nobody knew the power of the commercial and I had to get them to do it. So I shot that commercial on that one day and Michael and I became pals. And we became brothers for as long as he was alive. When the time came that I was going to do Beat It, all I thought of was Michael Peters. And I told Michael Jackson, I know you dance. Of course you dance. But I've got a choreographer that I want to use. That's my only caveat. I'd like to use Michael Peters, and he's a kick-ass choreographer. And Michael Jackson researched him and knew he had talent. He did chorus. He was the dance captain in a chorus line. So why not? So we began a relationship that from that point on, Michael Peters did all the stuff I did with Lionel, all the stuff I did with Jermaine, uh, all the stuff I did with Paul. I, I, he did everything that I did, but you know. And uh, did, did you, were you there for the initial in introduction of Michael Peters and Michael Jackson? I don't remember it, but I think it happened um, when we, you know what? It almost had to happen in a meeting, but I remember it all mostly happening in the, um, dance uh, rehearsals that took place in the dance studios up in Midtown Manhattan. When, because Michael Peters had all these dancers from Broadway. That's who was on the stage and beat it. 
dancers from Broadway. Okay. Right? Men, dancers from Broadway. And mixed with Crips and Bloods who didn't dance but were there courtesy of Michael Jackson. Right? Um, Michael Peters and Michael Jackson met and thought eye to eye. And as you know, Vince Patterson went on to be Michael Jackson's favorite choreographer and was very loyal for years and years and years and years. Well, he was introduced to Vince and beat it because at the same time, Vince was living with Michael Peters. They were living okay. together. They're roommates. They're roommates. They were living together. And he came to me and said, you, want to, you always wanted the, the, the rival gang member to be a, a white guy. You know, I got the perfect white guy for you. And it was Vince Patterson. Okay. So show up Vince Patterson and Michael Peters. I put them as the actors in the scenario. Michael Jackson is the choreographer. Vince Patterson's like his dance captain helping him. They bring all of these marvelous dancers from Broadway, put on, putting on the leather and trying to act tough. But if you watch it carefully, you see that it's not real. It's not. It's a theater. It's theater. It's theater of the absurd. It's a little over the top. It's you know. It's a bunch of, of probably very effeminate young men, dancers, sensational dancers, walking down the street like they're tough guys because it was that's what i always envisioned when i was with these guys and the real deal was that these guys were never tough you know they were tough enough but it, when it came down to it they were the first guy to say okay i gotta go i'll see you later yeah you know you know so that was my statement and i brought it back to michael jackson and he loved it and he made a few changes and he said yes i've got a bead on the crips and the bloods they'll be there they'll show up and the rest is history this is a shot in l.a or shot in L.A. Oh, so they've rehearsed... In the barrio. So they've rehearsed in New York? We rehearsed in New York. And shot in L.A. Yeah, and we rehearsed in... And then we, were, then we rehearsed in... Uh, no, we rehearsed in L.A. I'm sorry, it's not. It was re L.A. Okay. Everything... everything uh, my mind becomes a blur because so many of them cross over. Yeah. The next one uh, with... Um, with Pat Benatar is re is the same, pretty much the same crew rehearsed in New York because gotcha. it was a New York you know scenario. This is L.A. in the Barrio, and those dancers were, and they probably did dance in the uh, Broadway theater in New York, but they were in the L. He got them in L.A. Okay, we found them in L.A. And so, how much time did it take for, to get all that choreography to gel together? Do you remember? Two weeks. Okay, every day. Two weeks. And dancers don't dance more than that. They won't rehearse more than that. Okay. You know. And it was a, it was Michael Jackson, not my. Um, I'm sorry. It was Michael Peters' version of street dance. It wasn't Michael Jackson's version at that time. It was Michael Peters. However, Michael Jackson, because he's so brilliant, put in his own moves and the moonwalk and all of the you know all of the histrionics and and, and and hysteria became his his and everybody followed suit and it all ended up being but the dance that Vince and Michael Peters did was came from the mind and heart and soul of Michael Peters you know now what uh, now this is new now this wasn't this was called pop lock it was called you know it was break dance it was a lot of different names and it's all derivative and it was happening before but it was just now really getting i mean it's all derivative of hip hop of hip hop it all got to right. it but at that point it was just festering you know and michael jackson had his very animated and commercial uh influence in it one thing i was, I was really intrigued by that this was one of the first videos that used actual sound effects from the set yeah. into the song. 
Was that a challenge for you? And how did that happen? I because I've always saw it as not music. I always saw it as a play. I made it a play using the track as the background. Okay. That's what you know, and that used to drive people crazy. I got such criticism on Hello that it was saccharine, and how could you do that? I got criticism on Pat Benatar. And I forget, Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield. That's the first time that dialogue was ever used. You leave this house now, you can forget about ever coming back. Wow. Right? I was never, there was no dialogue in that in, in, in music videos. I used that, and then, yo, no, 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 the song starts, yeah. and we go, you know, no, no. Because I always saw it as theater with the track as background. And the artists allowed me to do that. Lionel challenged me on it when we did, you know. Uh, and then the first thing I did with Lionel was running with the night, you know, and, and which was again based on my going to dances with my gals and take my hand. You know, that was that's where that came from. And Michael Peters saw that and he says, oh, I love that, let me jump on that. Let me make that the theme for the choreography, pow. Pow, let's go. Okay. You know? Um, so it all had to do with my feeling that I want to tell a story, show a scenario, but it wasn't, I didn't do, I mean, I did a few uh, later on performance videos, but I was always taken by the opportunity to tell a narrative story and using the best track you can as the background. Because you, you always had to mic the set. And then in post production. Well, no, it, no, no, no. We um, we shoot playback. Oh, okay. We shoot playback. I kicked that playback up. I mean, there's a story. You know the story, right? About what happened. How we were going to shut down the set and what happened. You know, it was, it was the the Bloods and the Crips were yeah. were about to. So they did to get the, into yeah, it. Yeah, they got into it. One kid got roughed up pretty, you know. And the cops came to me and said, Bob, please. I, you know, uh, we got to pull this down now. You got one of the world's superstars over here because he was, you know, quickly like that. He was a superstar overnight, Michael. And I can't take a chance. I mean, I know he wanted us to use the Crips and the Bloods. Well, guess what? They're bored, you know, and they're going to, this is going to be a problem. So I got to, let's shut it down and come back tomorrow and finish. And I was that close to walking away because to me, Michael Jackson wasn't yet a hero. He was just a marvelous performer. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I said, what do I want to do this video shit for? Um, <laughs> you know, I'm making all that much money. I'm staying up real late at night in the barrio. I'm, you know, I got these guys looking at me when I tell them, I direct them. They look at me like, who the fuck are you talking to? You know, <laughs> you know, I said, what about, get out of here with this stuff. But something in me said, I never, yeah, officer, do me a favor. I hear you. You know what? Let me just try one thing, and if it doesn't work, we go home. I wasn't going to dance until the second night of shooting. I was going to do all the periphery stuff and then dance because the dancers had to get warmed up. They had to take care of themselves, their bodies. They had to get into the mood, and then they had to dance. I said, let me just go for a dance right now. Let me crank up the music, playback. Let me go for a dance. Let's see what happens. And I'll bet to this day, only because those cops wanted to see Michael Jackson perform, did they say, okay, let's go for it. <laughs> I'll let you try it, right? Because they wanted to go home. First of all, they were frightened. They didn't want to have to shoot anybody. And these kids are, these are bad dudes. Right. You know, they're not the coolest kids in the world, you know. All right. I yelled to the AD, Dick, we're going to dance. Let's go. Michael Peters runs to me and said, Bob, what are you doing? We're dancing tomorrow. I said, Mike, I got to do it today. The, the, the shooting is going to depend on it. Let's get everybody ready. 
Let's go get Michael out. Somebody, uh, Dick, the AD, go get Michael Jackson out of his trailer. Tell him to put on that red jacket because he's going to come down those boxes and we're going to dance. And I went to the sound man and I said, please, crank it up. And he said to me, Bob, I've been told by the production people that I can't go above a certain decibel. It's 2 o'clock in the morning in the barrio. People live then on, on all these streets. I said, guess what? Play it up one loud. By the time they wake up and go to the window, we'll either be out of here or we do, or they'll be dancing with us. Yeah. I said, you turn it up all the way you can. And I yelled at everybody to go, get the Crips, get the Bloods, get everybody together, line up the white side over there with... Mike, uh, with uh, Vince Patterson, the black side over here, with Michael Peters, and get Michael Jackson safe, and we're going to go for it. Get the rubber knives out and give them to the dancers, and let's go. And as I'm walking to the uh, warehouse uh, up the steps, because, you know, directors perform also. That's what we do, especially with music, you know. And I said, let me hear a little of the music. Let me hear a little of the track just to hear what it was. And you play a little bit of the beat it. And everything kind of like happens to everybody, whether you got rhythm or not, just goes inside your body and everybody's go, whoa, everybody wakes up. It's late at night. People are smoking. People have eaten too much. They just now start to slowly come alive. And I walk and I see a forklift. And I said to Michael Peter, I said, Mike, can you drive that? He said, not a chance, not a chance. I said, all right. I yell, I said, who can drive a forklift? And an actor, he said, I can just get behind this forklift. Michael, you jump, jump on here. That's your entrance. You're going to come up to the camera, jump off the forklift, and we start. And when you jump off the forklift, you give the shit to Vince. He gives you shit back, and we start, and we go for it. And then all ends up in dance, and everybody is going to be happy. Here we go, ready, and every and people are running around crazy, but everybody came to the set. Nobody was picking their nose, and nobody was at the food tray. Everybody came to the set. And on a film shoot, when you get that kind of interest, and you know shit's going down, this is something that happens to everybody. Well, as you can imagine, cranks it up, starting apart, starting from... Uh, what's his name? Eddie Van Halen's mm -hmm. guitar solo, which will kick your ass anyway, you know. And then all of a sudden, here comes Vince. Here comes Michael on the forklift. Off the forklift, everybody stares at everybody. They move to each other. They grab each other, tie rope around each other's hands. Click, click. Two knives, which are fake and phony. Now that part of the dance. Was, an eye, was something that was told to me when I worked in Patterson, New Jersey, 10 years earlier as a kid. One summer working in a, in a factory, I was told by a Hispanic man. My foreman came from the Bronx, Pelham uh, Pogwe. He told me about a fight that a, a bunch of gangs had, and kids would tie their hands. And not whether it was true or not, it just was it just sounded glorious. And they would cut each other up with their with their free hand, but their left hands were tied, and they used the right hand with their knives with their switchblades. So I told Michael Peters that he incorporated incorporated that in the dance, and that was going to be between him and Vince. So they do their first thing with their rubber knives. And the music is screaming, and Michael Jackson, on cue, comes down his boxes, down the box, separates them, 
and they go into their boom, bomb, bing, boom, and you could, I mean, you could die. I just got I chills. Mean, I got yeah, chills just now. You know, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm watching the Crips and the Bloods because I'm always watching my back, you know, and I'm saying, oh, oh, wait a minute. And I go over to the cameraman. He's, not, he's no longer with us, Danny. God bless his soul. Danny Quinn. I said, Danny, you get a chance. Because I had two cameras. He had one of them. I swing that camera on, and the reactions of this Crips and Bloods are outrageous. Don't, don't, not get that. You know, we're going to do this over and over and over again. You will get plenty of dance. But you, right now, the Crips and the Bloods are as mesmerized as assassins could ever be on a film set. I said, take two. Don't even think about it. Take that was great. Everybody's clapping. Every great take two. Everybody in places. Come on, Dick. Everybody in places. And I said, well, wait, come here, Dick. And I go to my bag. I had a bag there. I took out two switchblades that I had brought, that I had to go bought, purchased for me. And I said, give these to Vince and give this to Michael Peters. He said, Bob, you can't do that. It's against the law. You can't do that. These are switchblades knights. They'll cut their noses off. They'll, you know, you can't take it. Yeah. I said, Dick. Who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to me? You're out in the barrio with me. I'll, I'll, feed, I'll feed you to the... Go give these guys that, you know. And I say, watch what happens. And he goes over there and he says, here, Bob, I want you to have this. He gave one to Vince, gave one to Michael. And they never had a switchblade in their hand. You know, you're, you know a switchblade. Right, right, yeah. You ever try one? First of all, it's a pretty hefty piece of artillery. You know. It's serious. That, that's serious. That's a serious piece of, you know, uh, whatever, it's, whatever it's made of. Yeah. <laughs> White metal. Yeah. Right. So, and if you look at the video now, you'll see how, how much they respect that knife that's in their hand. They got their, they kept themselves away from that knife because they knew that they would just cut their nuts off, you know. And we danced all night with the real knives and everything came, everything was glorious. And I'll never, out of all of it, the thing that sticks in my mind more than anything, more than Michael, more than Michael and Vince, more than anything, is the faces of the Crips and the Bloods who would just stare at their brothers and probably say to themselves, shit, uh, you know what, I may be the baddest ass in town, but I can't do that. Wow. I, you know, I can't dance like that. You know, it was just incredible. And the cops gave me a hug and we got home. You know, and that's the beginning of my life in the music video business because it was the first one I ever did. You know, and Michael and Jackson and I are brothers that night. You know, only yeah, what, what was his reaction to the to the shoot? He just loved it. He loved it. He knew he was. You know what though, Corey? You know, and I hate to say this because it sounds pretentious, but it's not. It's truthful. Artists know, filmmakers know when they have something. And the majority of us don't know. And it happens. Sometimes good, a lot of times not so good, but it happens. Very few, very, very seldom. But when we know we got something, we know we got something. And you could just tell by the third take, second, third take, holy shit, this is special. The track is special, no doubt. The man is special, the star, no doubt. And it just came together and it's held up as no matter what anybody wants to say about it, where it was derivative of, whoever made it, what the wardrobe was, how authentic it is or isn't, it still is American history. It's just... Uh, absolutely. You know, you know, a month later, after we cut it, and I had it, in those days it was in a 35 millimeter cassette, 
you know, no, no, you know, not, not like we have today, no thumb drives. Um, we took that cassette. Me and Michael Peters were in L.A. doing something else, and he told me about a party. It was at uh, Eddie Murphy was at. I don't think it was his house or somebody else's hat. Uh, a dance party or it was a, just a great party. And come on, we're going to take this cassette. Let's go check it out. That's going to be our, you know, our testing. And we went to this party and went in the other room and we put this cassette in. And they must have played it 75 times. That's all, the party stopped on the dime to go in there and everybody's dancing to beat it. And we're, I'm sitting there about watching all these people. I said, holy shit. I mean, we know we've got something that's going to, you know. And it, with Billie Jean, were the two three-quarter cassettes that were, on, that were slammed on the desk in front of Bob Pittman when they said, now I dare you that you don't play this on MTV. I, we dare you that you don't play this anymore. Because you're telling us it's a station for white rockers, right? This is what's happening in this world today. You know, Bob, no, you got it. <laughs> you got it. And that was the end of it. What was your reaction to when the video came out? You know, did you know, oh, buddy? Because this is also, too, oh, yeah. this is oh, Michael's yeah. first big production. Yeah. You know, like you really introduced him as far as like big choreography on film. Um, that's something that became a staple of his career from that point forward. Yeah. Did you know at that moment? Yeah, like, we knew. I, I knew all the good things that were going to happen. What I didn't know was that some unfortunate spark was going to ruin our, our relationship, was going to harm him and hurt him badly. And it was done for, for no reason. And it was done for people that don't even appreciate it was done for an advertising agency and a soft drink. And Michael didn't even drink soft drinks. He would sell it. He would hold it, but he didn't even drink them. He was smart enough in those days to know that he wasn't going to drink all that sugar. And the advertising agency was BBD&O. And, you know, and it just was, it was just a bunch of people, selfish people saying, more, we want bigger, more, more, more. And more turned into a horrible accident. And he and I never recovered together. I mean, you know, it was okay. Jermaine and I became friendly. I filmed another two of Jermaine's. I ended up doing four Jermaine Jackson videos. They understood that I never tried to harm Michael. Of course. You know. Because this is also, this is after Beat It. Yeah, this is after Beat It. And Say, Say, Say. And Say, 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 okay. Because Paul, being who he is, immediately jumped on, said, oh, this is a guy named Giraldi that's in New York, and, this guy, and I just made this track with Jackson. I want this, you know, we're going to do it, you know, because he, he, he's just brilliant marketer. Paul McCartney is a brilliant marketer, you know, and we had a great time together, and Say, Say, Say still is, is a frolic. You know, it's a great romp, you know, and I found a way that I can have those two guys coexist, but how do you make a Michael Jackson and a Paul McCartney exist in the same, you know, a video. It's a tough one. That's right. not an easy one. What did you learn from Michael in your time with him on that Beat It set that was different from any other artist you had worked with at that time? What was different about him? And what did you learn from him? He told me I used the F word too much. <laughs> and I learned and I stopped for a while. Stopped for a long while because I respected Michael. Through it all, Michael was a, a giddy kid on the surface. Handsome as hell. I mean, really handsome before he attacked his face. This was when he had just started to, but he was really very, very nice looking. I learned to respect dance, the way he danced. 
he danced like no other human being. Nobody ever danced like that. Now with Fred Astaire's America's Greatest Dancer, perhaps, Gene Kelly hangs in there, but certainly Michael Jackson is right up there with them. And uh, if not top, he's certainly one of the top three. And I just couldn't, I was mesmerized, but the way he moved. Uh, and he told me to stop swearing, you know? But he liked my beard. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> I miss him. I miss listening to him, because I love his voice as well. For the 35th anniversary of Thriller, and the, you know, the greatest selling album of all time that you were a part of, um, you know, what would you say to Michael today? Hi. <laughs> Hi. I, I started swearing again, but I, I'll, 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 I'll stop, you know. <laughs> That's all. Just I, 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 I loved watching him. We weren't pals. We're different people. He came uh, scouting with us when we went scouting for Beat It. He rode in the van with us. Imagine that. Michael riding in the van because he wanted to be so much a part of the production. And we would pick the places where we shot because he would come with us, you know. And I always remember it was such telling that he told me, whether it's true or not, he said to us, we were going to stop for lunch, and we said, how about pizza? He said, oh, I'd love that. I've never had pizza. Now, this is Michael in his, what, early 30s? No, no, well, this is, this is he's 22, 23, 20. Is that beat it? 22, yeah. 23, that yeah. young? Yeah. Okay. No pizza. Says something about growing up a Jackson, whether he's right or whether it was inadvertent or not or truthful or not, I don't know, but... I said, we looked at each other and said, whoa, okay, let's stop and get some pizza. You know, he wanted to be part of the crowd. He was very, very, he was, he was curious. He was so curious and so talented. And I thank you very much. Bob Girardi, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being okay. here. You're okay. the man. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recording. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at MBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.